0: Okay, we're continuing our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We've gone through the first seven chapters so far, and we're continuing on in chapter eight. Paragraph one says, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and Savior of his church the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So a couple of things here. I've mentioned this previously, but just to reiterate, our confession of faith is very consistent with itself. The doctrines that are stated in one place are reinforced in other places, and that is because, as scripture, our confession seeks to faithfully reflect the consistency of God's mind as he's revealed it in the Bible. So you notice here, first primary doctrine, Christ is the elect of God, the mediator of God's testament. So we've looked at the doctrine of election before, and we've looked at God's decree and so you'll see there, in his eternal purpose, he chose and ordained the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the right way to think of election, is that God chose Christ and in him the seed. And we'll look at that in Ephesians 1, Lord willing, this coming Sabbath, how we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it's in him that we are chosen. Election, in other words, is related to Christ. Also, we studied God's covenant of grace, and we saw how it is properly called a testament because of the inheritance and the death of the testator. You'll notice how that's brought in here, that we're chosen in Christ, that God had an eternal purpose, and that Christ is made the heir of all things. So Christ inherits all, and we inherit in him. So that's one thing. Christ is the elect of God, and he's the mediator of God's testament. And then the second primary doctrine is that Christ has a threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the greater than Moses, the prophet that Moses said would be raised up by God. Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is the king from the lineage and house of David to rule over the house of Israel. So this is Christ's threefold office. And then the third primary doctrine here is that the chosen people are Christ's heirs. They're his seed. That's the idea of a seed. Those who inherit the goods of their father, so to speak. So the chosen people or the elect of God are actually the heirs of Christ, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Christ inherits all. He's the heir of all things and we are his seed, we are his heirs. And then this particular set of heirs is those people to whom he secures and applies all these benefits. And that's, of course, through his death. The death of the testator gives the benefits to the heirs. Okay, now this is also consistent with the idea of the elect being unchangeably numbered, just as the reprobate are unchangeably numbered, which we looked at and the part on God's decree, Um, if Christ would uh, would die for people who don't inherit, then that would completely undo the biblical teaching on the decree of God, on the nature of Christ's atonement, and on the nature of election being irrevocable and being settled all the way from eternity past all the way to eternity future. Paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, and of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now we could spend several months unpacking these first two paragraphs. I'm going to do a very high-level overview. So let's look at this here. First primary doctrine Christ is fully God and fully man, yet without sin. It's extremely important. If Christ is not God, he cannot save. If Christ is not man, he cannot save us. Because in both instances, there's something essential to the salvation of sinners that's required. If he were God only without the joining together of the manhood, then he could not die for our sins. Death is not possible for God. It, it shows a weakness or a defect that is inherent in humanity to be mortal since the fall. So if Christ were not man, he could not die for our sins. If he were not God, he could not overcome our sins. So those two are requisite. Just as a very brief summary there. Second primary doctrine. <clears throat> Christ was conceived by the power of God's Spirit, and made of the Virgin Mary's substance. This is extremely important. If Christ partakes of a human father, he inherits the original sin of our first father, Adam. Not having a human father, he does not partake in the ordinary generation that occurs and passes sin on. And we've looked at that, that uh, all those born in the ordinary way are conceived and born in sin. And so Christ, not partaking in that, he did not have that sin passed on to him. And yet he has a true human nature from the substance of the Virgin Mary. Third primary doctrine here. Christ's two natures are whole, perfect, distinct, and inseparably joined in one person. And then the phrases are used without conversion, composition, or confusion will give a little bit of detail on that. So the perfection of Christ's humanity and the perfection of Christ's deity are joined in one person. Conversion would be where the divine nature is changed into the human nature. That's the idea of conversion. Composition would be where rather than being one person, he, as a simple divine being, he would be a complex person half this and half that. That's the idea of composition. And then confusion is where the nature—the natures would be mixed up, like a not fully divine, not fully human nature, but a mixture of the two, a confused nature, two natures fused together in one third nature, you might say, or that might even be considered a conversion. But in any case, each... Nature retains its properties. The Godhead is not becoming a man deity, and the humanity is not a deified humanity. The properties are retained. And this strikes down at the early heretics and the papists and the Eastern Orthodox, because they will profess that Christ is present everywhere in his humanity when the Lord's table is observed. Lutherans say the same thing, or a similar thing. Not quite the same, but similar. That would mean that the true and proper body of Christ is divine. Because God can be present in several places at once. A body cannot. A body can be present in one place at a time. That's it. So to say that somehow Christ is bodily present in the Lord's table is heresy... It makes a divinized humanity in Christ, which the early councils anathematize as the worst sort of blasphemy and heresy. And yet, people have the audacity to say that they're Catholic and they reject the early Catholic creeds. No, Christ is not mixed into a divine humanity. And we don't become God, contrary to the Eastern Orthodox. They say that salvation is deification, because they say Christ was converted into humanity, so that we could be converted into deity. No, that's not true. There is a statement in Athanasius that says that, but it's obviously hyperbole, he doesn't mean it, because you see elsewhere in his writings that he denies that explicitly. (coughs) Alright, these uh, two natures completely uh, joined together in one person inseparably, but completely uh, in their integrity in each. And then finally, the fourth primary doctrine Christ is the sole mediator between God and man. And actually, everything we just talked about is what makes him the sole mediator between God and man. This is why he can't have a companion in his work of mediation. Is Mary fully God and fully man? Was she conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of her mother? Does she have two natures, whole, perfect, and distinct, deity and humanity? Is she therefore qualified to be a mediator? The answer is no, because she doesn't possess any of the attributes requisite for the work of mediation. She therefore has no part in our mediation between God and sinners. And when you ask another believer to pray for you, you're not asking them to be a mediator. Because you're not asking them to have the merits by which you enter into God's presence. You're not asking them to see your heart and to know your thoughts and to judge your intentions. You're just asking them if they would go to the mediator for you. That's all you're doing. And they, papists will say, well, that's what we're doing to the saints in heaven. No, you're not. You're praying to someone who's not present. You're, You're attributing divine attributes that they can hear your thoughts, that they can hear your prayers all the way up there in heaven. They can hear your thoughts and your prayers. That's blasphemy. No creature can do such a thing. Christ is the only mediator. He's the only one qualified, the only one chosen, the only one who is God-man. Third paragraph. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, To the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by the Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand, and gave him commandment to execute the same. Now this is pretty much just a string of scripture quotations virtually drawn directly out of the pages of the New Testament and placed in order here to help us understand. The first primary doctrine, Christ was fully furnished and equipped to accomplish salvation for his people. There's not one thing he needed that he wasn't given in his his human nature. Everything that was requisite to accomplish our salvation. And this makes him the only full mediator. The sole mediator, the complete and thoroughly furnished mediator. Second primary doctrine. Christ was uniquely and perfectly qualified to undertake this role. The only only person ever qualified for this work of mediation is Christ. And that qualification is perfect. There's nothing lacking in it. And then third... Christ was called by God to this role and he did not promote himself. He didn't push himself forward. He was chosen by the Father, ordained by the Father, called by the Father. Paragraph four. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. Enduring most grievous torments immediately in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world." Very powerful, very powerful, a compact or compendious statement of all that Christ did for us in his humiliation, in his sufferings, in his death, his burial, his remaining under that power of death and yet not corrupting at all and rising again, ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of his father and they're making intercession, praying on behalf of us, and coming to judge the world at the last day. It's a, a great summary statement, much like the Apostles' Creed, a very brief statement of all that Christ did for us. So, first doctrine here Christ willingly undertook this office. Although he did not push himself forward, when the Father commanded, he did it willingly, he chose to do it for us. And then second primary doctrine Christ rose from the dead in his same body and with that body ascended to heaven and then the third primary doctrine Christ intercedes for his people and awaits the final judgment interceding being a praying on behalf of him his prayer is where he presents actually what he did he appears with his blood to demonstrate that God ought to accept his prayers and us for whom he prays. No one else could do that. We can't do that. We can't do that for others. Only Christ can do that to be a mediator, <coughs> which is associated with him taking his blood into the tabernacle as Aaron did and sprinkling it on the most holy in the most holy place on the mercy seat. That's what Christ does as our mediator and as our great high priest. Paragraph 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Okay, so first primary doctrine here, Jesus' work is composed of perfect obedience and sacrificing himself. That's what we see there. Two parts, perfect obedience and sacrificing himself. You can also think of that, sometimes we talk about the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience. Actively, keeping all the righteousness that God required of him and that he required of us, but we failed. And then passively, suffering under the justice of God, still in obedience to God, he was obedient even unto the death of the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. So these two parts of his obedience. (coughs) And then the second major doctrine, this offering fully satisfied divine justice, meaning his obedience and his sacrifice together compose a complete satisfaction of justice. God can't demand a further payment. God demands obedience so that we might live. Christ performed that. God demands death for those who disobey. Christ took that upon himself. So there isn't any more category of justice where God could say, I want this done. Which is why, as we'll see, we cannot believe in a universal atonement. It's not biblically possible because if Christ atoned for every single sin except one, then guess who shares in the glory? Whoever atones for that final sin that Christ couldn't quite take care of or didn't want to take care of. The Arminian says that final sin is unbelief. Jesus didn't die for the unbelief of the world. He just died for all their sins, which is ridiculous because unbelief is a violation of the first commandment. So, Christ made a perfect satisfaction to justice. And that means either everybody's saved because there's no other justice that needs to be satisfied or that means that nobody's saved or you could say the elect, the elect are saved. So if he perfectly satisfied, he either did it for everyone or for some people. I suppose you could say, conceivably, there's this one last thing that Christ had to do, namely unbelief, that he didn't die for that. Well, then nobody's saved, honestly, because man can't believe in his own strength. In any case, full satisfaction of divine justice, no further payment. And then third primary doctrine here. Reconciliation and everlasting inheritance were purchased for those the Father gave to him. Christ talks about this explicitly. The Father gave me these people. I lay down my life for them, for the sheep. I don't lay it down for the goats. This is in John 10. And then he talks about how because he laid down his life for the sheep, therefore they have eternal life. So this is the inheritance. Remember Christ is the heir of all things, we're his seed, we inherit together with him, and therefore when he died, we were reconciled to God, his justice satisfied, and we have an inheritance because we inherit with him. All right, now, paragraph six. Again, we could spend months on each one of these paragraphs looking at all the passages and that may happen at some point in the distant future, but not this time. Paragraph six, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, and in by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed, and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same, and forever. Okay, so here we have a couple of primary doctrines. Three, first. The virtue, efficacy, and benefits of Christ's obedience and death apply to the Old Testament saints. It's not that somehow they were waiting until Christ died. No, these applied in their very age successively it says in all ages successively from the beginning these benefits were communicated so they didn't wait until Christ actually died and this fiction of him descending down into the limbus patrum the limbo of the fathers halfway between heaven and hell and he had to get them out or something ridiculous like that that's not what the scriptures teach it teaches us that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So that every age after the foundation of the world had the redemption of Christ applied to all who believe. So that's the first thing. The second is that the elect in prior ages were built up by types, promises, and prophecies of Christ yet to come. So the elect in prior ages were built up by types, promises, and prophecies of Christ yet to come. Now it lists a couple of these types. That is, an institution, a type is an institution or a historic figure or some action taken by a historic figure that represents something about the gospel, something about Christ, something about the church. Um, baptism is likened to the ark and the flood, and the deliverance through water. Um, Because there are points of similarity, Aaron is a type of Christ because he represents the people to God and blesses in the name of God. Melchizedek, a type of Christ. The specific action of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah is a type of the sacrifice of Christ. So there are events, there are people, there are institutions. The whole sacrificial system is a type of the heavenly worship where Christ presented His sacrifice on our behalf. So these are our types. And we can talk more about types another time. And we do talk about it. When we go through the Old Testament readings, you'll notice I'll bring that out, that this is representing some gospel reality, this thing that we're reading about here. Okay. So third primary doctrine, Christ's unchangeable purpose and divinity ensure the accomplishment of this. So Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's fully God. And therefore, he's going to ensure that all the elect in all ages receive these benefits. And furthermore, the purpose of God is that he would save his people. And you'll notice with this in mind how this is consistent with the idea of God's eternal decree. It's also consistent in the doctrine of God's covenant of grace uh, there are not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one covenant of grace with different administrations. So you see, when people tinker with those things, they end up tinkering with the rest of the confession of faith. It's not appropriate. The Bible is consistent with itself. Christ is consistent with Himself. Christ had a purpose to save His people from before the foundation of the world. They were united to Him in eternity past, and we were given to Him as His seed. And that includes Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, all the way up to the New Testament. All of the elect of God are redeemed in precisely the same way, though they are edified or were edified and had the efficacy of the word applied to them in ways that were preparatory, whereas we have the efficacy applied to us in ways that are celebratory. They're preparing for Christ to come. We're celebrating that Christ has come. They looked forward. We look back. But it's one Christ, one way of salvation. Okay, so I'm going to stop here for any questions that you men may have before we get into paragraph 7. Casey, did you have any questions? No? Okay. David, did you have any questions? I'm going to assume not. Okay. No, I'm fine. I'm sorry. I got away from the phone for a minute. No problem. No problem. Paragraph 7, Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Now just to explain a little bit about what this is saying, we've talked about how Christ is fully God and fully man. Two distinct natures in one person. Now, when Christ does things, like dying, that is not an action, properly speaking, that can be attributed to God. God is immortal. God cannot die. He possesses immortality. He is life itself. Therefore, he cannot die. It's not possible. It would argue some kind of defect in God if he could die, some kind of creaturely limitation as opposed to infinity of life. He would have finite life, and so he cannot die. But because Christ is both God and man, the Bible will attribute things to him according to his divine nature that are only suited to the human nature. So, for instance, it says in Acts 20.28 that the Apostle Paul told the elders at Ephesus to uh, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Does God have blood? Of course not. But because the one person who shed his blood, according to his human nature, is also God, therefore the Bible does that. That's what it's saying here. It's not saying that the two natures are fused into a third nature, or they're confused with each other, or that the divinity was converted into humanity. All it's saying is, the one person who died and shed his blood is also God. That's what it's saying. That's what it's assuming. And so this is not the communication of divinity to the humanity. This is merely the attribution to the person of the works of humanity. And there are also, you'll you'll find other parts where it talks about the Son of God doesn't know the day or the hour. Okay, well, the Son is his divinity, the Son of God. But it's saying... According to his divine nature, he has limits to his knowledge, which is appropriate only to the humanity. So, once we understand that the Bible addresses Christ as one person, and sometimes we'll use the one nature to describe what's uh, suitable to the other, a lot of those passages that seem to be confusing make a little more sense. God can't be ignorant of the last day. How is it that only the Father could know? Well, because he's speaking of himself according to the human nature with the limitations inherent in human nature. The human nature of Christ was not omniscient. So when you see the human nature acting in such a way as appears to be omniscient or omnipotent, it's because the one person is fully God and fully man. That's all it's saying there. So that said, these kind of demonstrate themselves from that explanation, but first Christ's work is carried out by the proper actions of each nature. Uh, Interesting passage. Who is this that speaks blasphemy? Who alone can forgive sins but God? Remember the paralytic. Well, he could say, I forgive sins, although he's speaking from a human voice, with human words, with a human tongue, from a human larynx and lungs. Okay. So these are actions of what appears to them to be strictly a man, and yet he is fully God. And he demonstrates that by raising him from his sickbed. In any case, passages abound like this. Second, Scripture sometimes attributes to the person of Christ what is proper to one nature or to the other. And knowing that can really help us not make some blunders that heretics tend to make where they fuse together the natures natures of Christ. All right. Paragraph 8. To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mystery of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power. And wisdom, in such manner and ways as are most consonant to His wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Okay, so a couple of things to note here. First, primary doctrine: Christ works salvation in those for whom He purchased redemption. That's the first primary doctrine here. Christ is the one who works salvation in those for whom He purchased it. Now. Back to the discussion of God's decree and how that relates to His covenant and how that relates to Christ as the mediator. Christ is fully God. He shed His own blood on the cross and He shed it for specific people to satisfy justice completely so that He could get them halfway to glory and then they'd fall away and go to hell? Of course not. That's ridiculous. If God has purposed in eternity past to give a seed to his son, and he's unchangeably fixed that number, they will most certainly end up in eternal glory with the full inheritance. There's no doubt about that. There may be people that we observe who appear to believe in Christ who don't. God knows their hearts. God's not surprised. God determined to withhold the grace to give to them that would cause them to be saved. But here we see Christ purchases redemption and Christ applies it by the Holy Spirit. And that's very important. Any enemy that might come against us because he is our king of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection, by the spirit of holiness, he's fully God and fully man. Therefore, this king can overcome all of our enemies. Notice there, by his almighty power and wisdom, He overcomes all their enemies. Okay, so that's the second thing. Uh, Primary doctrine is that Christ uses the means of grace, especially the word to accomplish this. He brings them in touch in and by his word with the mysteries of salvation. Now, mysteries are not things you scratch your head about and wonder, I can't figure this out. A mystery is literally... A secret not known by outsiders. That's what the mystery is in the Bible. I speak a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. Outsiders don't understand Christ and the church. They just know the man's the head of his wife. They know the natural truth, not the supernatural truth. And the supernatural truth is revealed in the word of God to the elect. That's what that means there. In and by the word. The mysteries of salvation are brought and revealed to us by Christ himself through the power of his spirit. And that's what enables us to believe. So Christ works faith in us. Christ works through the ear with the word and in the heart by the spirit to convert through what is heard in the ear. And then third, Christ overcomes all the enemies of his people. this is his kingly office. Okay, any questions about paragraph 7 or 8? No? David, do you have any questions about those two paragraphs? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Chapter 9 of Free Will. Paragraph 1. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. So the first doctrine here, man's will has natural liberty. It is not forced by absolute necessity. And then second, man's natural will is not determined absolutely to good or evil. Now, just to uh, make a, a comment here, Absolute is the critical term. Man's nature in his fallen state is relatively made necessary to do evil, but it's only relative to man's fallen condition, not absolutely in every condition in every time. So when man was unfallen, we'll see, he did have liberty to do good, but mutably so. But the point that that this portion makes is that there was not a mechanism built into man that absolutely forced him to either do good or evil. That's, that's all this is saying. There's this natural liberty in the will. In fact, the will, what makes the will is its ability to choose among options. That's what makes the will, the will. Okay, paragraph two, man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. Okay, so here we have a couple of primary doctrines. First, man's natural power before the fall was a freedom of will to do good. So man's natural power before the fall was a freedom of will to do what was good. Second primary doctrine, this power and freedom was mutable, entailing the possibility of falling. If it were immutably good, that would almost, you might say, be a divine attribute given to him. If it could, without fail, always choose what was good, then that would mean he was God. In fact, in this respect, you could say that God has a free will in respect of choosing among alternatives, but not in terms of mutability. God does not have a mutable will that could possibly fall. He does not possess that power. And if we want to define free will as the mutability of the will to choose to be evil rather than good, God does not have free will in that sense. He does in the sense of selecting among alternatives. But not in the sense of mutability. God is immutable. He cannot change. And that's what secures our hope. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Because God cannot change. He is incapable of becoming better. Because he's the best. And he's incapable of becoming worse. Because he cannot fail. And he's incapable of becoming different. Because he's always the same. So God is immutable. Okay, paragraph three. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Okay, first primary doctrine, man's natural ability of will was lost at the fall so far as salvation is concerned. Man does have the capacity to choose among alternatives. He has that natural freedom of will, but spiritually, he has completely lost the ability to choose what is spiritually good. Okay, so he cannot choose to be saved, for example, there's none... That seeketh after God, we're told. And that's an act of the will. You choose to seek after someone or something because you consider it to be good for you. Man doesn't have that ability. He can't. Okay, so man lost that at the fall. And then note that man's fallen nature is totally bent against good. It is dead in sin. It's unable to prepare man for salvation. Now again, not by an absolute necessity, but by a relative necessity due to the fallen condition of man as dead in sins. God said, and the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And he meant it. He wasn't talking primarily even about the physical life of man. He was talking about his spiritual life primarily. And so here we see the the will of man, dead in trespasses and sins, incapable of, of choosing what is good in that relative bondage of the will. Not an absolute necessity, but relatively so. Okay. Verse, or excuse me, paragraph four. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that, by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. Okay, so, first primary doctrine here is that God frees fallen sinners from their natural bondage to sin, by His grace alone. That's the first primary doctrine. The natural bondage of the will is only overcome by God's grace. And then, second, remaining corruption prevents perfection of will in this life. Man's will in this life, even after redemption, cannot perfectly will what is good, a sad reality, which we will consider in Romans 7, but we've also looked at in our scripture reading. Um, I'm trying to think of the passage specifically, but I believe it was in 2 Corinthians, or Galatians actually, the spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh lusteth against the spirit, so that you cannot do the things that you would, that's the word will. When he says what you would, "phelain" is the Greek verb, which means what you are willing to do. After the law of God is in the mind and the heart is renewed by God, there is a will to do what is good. But I find within me another law, Paul says, by which I'm brought into the bondage of sin. I don't want to sin. That's not my will. It's not my choice. And yet I find this law in operation. So the corruption that remains makes the will imperfect in choosing what is good. It makes us do things we don't want to do. It makes us choose things we don't want to choose. It makes us things think things we don't want to think. And then finally, paragraph five there, the will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory alone. Well, that's a blessed thought that our will, our desires, our choices, our thoughts, our affections, all of man, but particularly we're talking about his will here, it will be determined, in that case, immutably. God will communicate a power above the natural order by which man will be able to will only what is good. And that's the point here. There is an immutable freedom to goodness at that point. God confirms us in a way that takes away the possibility of falling because the will will be be made perfectly blessed in the enjoyment of God. And so that's our primary doctrine there. This has to wait until the state of glory. It will not happen in this life. To expect it to happen in this life is to frustrate ourselves and it will require, if we want to be sinless perfectionists, it will require that we turn sin and the actions of the will into mere externals. That's what you'll find. Anyone who believes in sinless perfection is a formalist, by definition. Because if you understood what the law requires of your will, in every aspect of your actions, and every thought that you chose to think, and every object that you chose to set your will on, and every delight that you took in external objects as an action of your will, and that all those had to be pleasing to God at all times, you could not say that your will is sinlessly perfect. You'd realize your will is corrupt, and it's constantly choosing things and delighting in things it shouldn't. So therefore, if you want to say, I believe in sinless perfectionism and free will of man, which those two tend to go together, twin errors, then you're going to have to make the law of God solely consist in, well, I don't smoke cigarettes and I don't say bad words and I wear the right clothes and I do the right external things. You're going to become a formalist. It's, in, it's inevitable. I grew up Nazarene. Nazarenes believe in sinless perfectionism. They believe in the five points of Arminianism. They believe that man can become perfect in this life. <clears throat> they also had a list of rules about how to be holy. Don't smoke, don't chew. Don't kiss those that do. That's the rules. Then you got to have a skirt that's this long, and you can't watch this, and you can't play the cards, and you... Da-da-da-da-da. They had a list of external rules that people had to comply with so that they could continue in their delusion that they were sinlessly perfect. Formalism. That's what it always produces. Because anytime you believe in man for salvation or for perfection, and you can say you believe in God all you want, but it's actually a faith in man... Because God has said, I'm not going to make you perfect until you see me. You're going to have to deal with your sin. You're going to have to wrestle with your sin. You're going to have to mortify your sin. These, these injunctions to all the church to put off the old man means it's going to stay with you till you die. So if God chose that it's going to be that way, and you say, no, it's not that way, you're deceiving yourself. And you will deceive yourself out of spiritual comfort or out of salvation. Because you'll be trusting in man rather than in God. And therefore, you'll have this external formalistic approach. Okay, so thus far in the confession, any questions about these last few paragraphs on the free will of man? Dave, I'm fine, thank you. Okay, let's close in prayer.